welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. This is episode three of the Free Cities podcast. This week, I'm in Honduras again, and I'm talking to a very interesting gentleman by the name of Christian Betancourt. Christian is an attorney with experience in the banking and finance sectors, as well as fintech and legal tech. And he's also the co-founder and general counsel at Seshat Bank. Seshat is a commercial bank that's been licensed in Prospera which is the innovative charter city currently being built on the island of Ruatan. In fact, Seshat was the first custom regulatory regime that was approved within Prospera. So Christian has many intriguing anecdotes from his work during the formation of the bank. Christian is always very candid with his conversation and we discuss many ideas, including liberty and self-determination, as well as concepts around the notion of sovereignty and self-sovereignty. He also speaks about Honduras' ZAs, the so-called Zones for Employment and Economic Development, in particular about their history and that of many other autonomous zones around the world. We finish talking about the process of setting up the bank in Prospera and how they went about creating their own regulatory framework, as well as discussing a few of Christian's ideas about the future of banking with regards to cryptocurrencies and CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies. All in all, this was a fascinating conversation and one that I sincerely hope that you will appreciate. So it just leaves for me to say, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Christian Betancourt. Uh, So what's your name? And and just introduce yourself so I've got it for the record. Yeah, um, my name is Christian Betancourt. I'm an attorney uh, with, um, you know, experience in banking and financial law and fintech and legal tech and so on. And where are you from? Where were you born? Where do you live? Um, I'm here from Honduras. I was born originally in San Pedro Sula in the industrial capital. I've been living here in, in Roatan and Prospera for, I don't know, the last year. The last year. So Prospera bought you here. You didn't come here and then discover Prospera was here. Yeah, I mean, I've been following the whole, uh, the set of the regime, the legal environment that has been been built for, what, last eight years or so. So this is something that I was always, you know, looking closely at, looking how it was developing. And so when the time came, when it actually was launched, the first one, the first set it started operating, Prospera um offered you know uh, a very fertile environment for 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 do cool things you know for do the sort of things that i wanted to do and the opportunity with such a bank came over and i said sure look, let's build it so your 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 ideals or your your ideology was already relatively aligned with the ideas behind a ZA. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would be fair to say. I'd rather not use the word ideology, but yeah, the philosophy of life. The I know what you mean. It's a, it's a loaded word, ideology. I, I'll stick with ideals. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I, the reason I ask is because I was wondering how many people 
um, joined in with these projects because they were already interest. They were already thinking like that. I, I'm always interested to know what people are generally, you know, generally like because it's only since we've I've actually started mixing in these circles that I've realised how many people there are out there who who think this way. It's not a, it's not a common or popular. Well, it's a popular way of thinking, but I think it's not necessarily one that people tend to um, speak too loudly about. I've heard people talk about, um, for example, the idea of sovereignty. And a lot of people see sovereignty as national sovereignty, whereas a, a lot of people I know see it as uh, individual sovereignty. You know, that's the natural kind of sovereignty for me. Is that How is it in, in Honduras, you know? Well, uh, regarding the, the whole movement, I think it has grown a lot for the last 10 years. I'd say like 10 years ago, there were perhaps 15 people in the country that, that wouldn't, you know, share or, or understand or get into this idea. So I think there's there's been a lot of, not just here, but just in Latin America, a lot of people have gotten into into you know the the ideas of liberty and 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 self determination, so that's that's very very glad to 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 see how it how it's blossoming. Um, regarding the the whole sovereignty thing, actually, I've been working on a paper about it, an article, a five six pager. Perhaps I can share it. I, I wanted to translate it to English too, and I want I'm, you know perhaps we can work it out with with the Free Cities Organization, because it's um, the whole sovereignty argument. Uh, has been well well for starters it has been you know politically manipulated uh but aside from that it's just a very superficial interpretation of it because and and i've gotten into it i i i went down the rabbit hole right um so the whole thing of what, what they call popular sovereignty was um originally first in, included in a legal text in a, in a, in a legal body with the um, with the constitutions in France after the French Revolution, that was the first time it was actually included. Ideas, implications of it were also included in in the Declaration of Independence of the United States. Um, uh, but the whole idea of sovereignty is, you know, actually quite recent. It's medieval. It it was this, you know, this legal fiction that, uh, in a way legitimized um you know the power that uh, kings and uh, kingdoms and the crown exerted right over its uh, over its subjects first and afterwards over the citizens right um so that i mean this concept didn't exist in in in, in ancient rome or in ancient greece how was it manifesting prior to the medieval times then that the what 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 was the system if it wasn't a sovereign is like the sovereignty is basically the legitimation of the exertion of power. So there were uh, like the Romans had this concept called imperium, which was basically uh, a concept which explained the exertion of power itself, but they didn't actually try to legitimize it because you know there is no actual uh, legitimacy to it. If, if you want to get into it. It's just the way the way it went, the way this, that states developed, and there, there's a lot being written about that. Um, the way a, a group sort of took into the, the you know, pr providing safety for the other members of the group, and you know, monopolized power around it. So there was no idea of it being legitimate. It was just the way it was, 
but then the whole idea that would that kings were put on by a divine power by a god and then the cult concept of sovereignty starts unraveling um of course we had the revolutions we had uh, you know many uh, monarchies crumbled so what did we do with that concept and that was for around a century that was a, a big discussion amongst the you know scholars and lawyers and whatnot well if the king is not legitimate i mean if the king is not the sovereign because we're no we're not subjects anymore now we're citizens right so who is it, well first is there such thing as sovereignty and if it is who is the sovereign right if it's not the king um so you know uh, hugo grosio uh, hugo gracious said that perhaps the natural law was the sovereign itself. Other people said that God directly was the sovereign. Um, until we got to the Enlightenment and through John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, we ended up concluding that we as citizens were the sovereigns. We as individual citizens were the sovereigns of our lives and over the way that we wanted to, you know, conduct the country that we lived in and 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 choose the laws that applied to us. But that, that sovereignty at the end of the day, you know, the legitimacy to decide upon the laws that, that are applied and the legitimacy to actually enforce them. Um, so, of course, it would be difficult to do it in an individual way. So during the Enlightenment, you know, the whole fiction of the popular sovereignty, this individual sovereignty is then fused in a way in a, into a collective that can be exerced. Um, so then, well, in Latin America, we have, and that's perhaps we want to mix those topics, that in Latin America, when these states were being developed, right? These are very mixed countries, right? This, I mean, the whole idea of nation-state doesn't work as well because we're not one nation. We're just a mix of ethnicities and whatnot. Uh, so there had to be um, a big effort of, you know, the founding fathers of, of all the Latin American countries to create a state, to create an identity. And somewhere along the way, <laughs> I'd say something went wrong because we'd started, uh, in, in a very marked way, we started confusing country with government, right? Um, the country and, and, and the individual sovereignty, we, we started confusing it with sovereignty being exclusively uh, ex um, exercised by the government in, in turn. So, yeah, I'd say those, those would be in broad strokes. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do you think that <clears throat> is particularly relevant in Central America then? Or, you know, compared to anywhere else, like Europe or whatever? And, and it's, you know, <clears throat> it, I'm just thinking myself about what I consider sovereignty back home. Um, whether I think how is it, how much is it connected with with government, how much is it connected with the nation? I don't know. I don't really know. It's not, I've never actually thought of it. I've always thought, like you say, self-sovereignty, sovereignty over the self is the obvious sovereignty that, that exists, the, the kind of natural sovereignty. And um, there's a difference between, um, if you look, if you see it in terms of um, power, say, um, your a king has um, doesn't have real power, not physical power. They have abstract power. They have a power that's kind of people think, oh, well, the king's powerful. 
<laughs> the king's not actually powerful on the whole. You're probably taller than the king. You could probably <laughs> beat him in a fight if you really wanted to. <laughs> is it not? So do you think self-sovereignty is a naturally occurring sovereignty? Is that left left to our own devices? Is that what nature would consider sovereignty? Well, it's like after actually spending a couple of years reading about it, uh, I, I got to be quite frank. I don't think there is such thing as sovereignty. I think it's just a fiction. Uh, any kind of sovereignty. Any kind of sovereignty. That's that's just bogus. Uh, that was just uh, something that they came up with to legitimize the exertion of power and somehow sticked uh, through the centuries. And now, of course, nation states like to, like to take advantage of it uh, because it's... Um, Friedrich Hayek in in uh, law liberty and legislation law law legislation liberty talks a, talks a bit about it and it's he does a couple of you know logical exercises and uh, if we are in, if there is such thing as sovereignty it should be individual uh, because it is the individual the one who has the rights right the natural rights um, with whatever justification you want to put to that but let let's start. Uh, from the condition that we have natural rights, natural rights belong to the individual, and so, hence the sovereignty, the legitimacy to decide uh, how we want to live and and how and which laws we want want to uh, we want to be applied to us, um, would would definitely be individual. And if there is ever a conflict between the state being the sovereign. Or the individual being the sovereign, there is no reason for it to be the state over the individual, and that is perhaps uh, uh, something that rings particularly close to home, given the the whole discussion that has been happening in Honduras related to the setters. There is the people that have voluntarily come to uh, to work, to live inside of the setters, to you know in, invest their time, their money into beautiful, beautiful projects that are being developed. Uh, where you know where do you live the sovereignty f- from them right they are sovereign they have voluntarily come uh, to be subject to this special regime to these particular laws to this particular legal environment and the rest of the people are not affected by it that that's another part that people don't consider I mean if you if you don't agree with what it's being done here um, you don't have to be part of it you know these laws don't apply to you if you want to stay in in continental Honduras or or, or anywhere else right um, the, isn't the argument though that and obviously I'm not saying it's correct um, but the argument is that by moving to a place like Azede, you're undermining the sovereignty <laughs> of the nation. And and a lot of people believe in that, don't they? A lot of, you know, they really do believe in it. It's it's something potentially that they, they want as well. So they, they kind of, if they perceive that the nation is a unit, a whole a one powerful unit, um, anyone coming in and potentially sort of creating an alternate or a parallel system is inherently potentially undermining this this powerful unit. Definitely, exactly. That, but that's just misguided and that's just superficial. Mm, then that's what I referred to uh, in the connection that you know, like the the collective uh, thinking makes that you link the country or the nation to the exertion of power from the government, and that's that's messed up. Um, so that that's the thing that you gotta consider. It's like 
we are sovereign as a country and that means that we should you know exercise power overall of the territory why i mean uh, at the end of the day and we we got to go back again to the roots of sovereignty sovereignty is about you choosing and exercising uh, the laws that you want to apply and the laws from the national congress are still being applied are still being you know observed from by people in the ordinary regime these special regimes were built specifically in places where nobody was living so you're not saying though that the whole self sovereignty versus nation sovereignty thing is a bit i i always thought that that was a eternal struggle going back millennia you know the the individual versus the collective is another way of saying basically it, right but you you're not saying that that um what, what you were saying about medieval the you know medieval times and and you know the systems that have happened since then you you agree do you that this is an eternal struggle that that ebbs and flows a bit like uh, well, like a beating heart i suppose it's like some the collective sometimes becomes more powerful and then it can't it can't exert its power in, on on an, on enough people, and it collapses, and then the individuals regain sovereignty. Is that how it works? Uh, I'd say so. Yeah, like from from my perspective, from 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 what I've read, I think it's it's been a a going and a coming in and going through the centuries, and even if it has fluctuated, and there has been you know certain times in history and certain places in history where the individual rights have gained some ground it really didn't happen to the extent that we have today until you know the enlightenment and the industrial revolution so it's yeah the past 200 years 250 years and that's why i think it's also so so special and so worth protecting right and 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 educating about so are you are you confident on the future of the za movement in as a decentralizing movement do you think it leads towards further um, self-sovereignty or sort of individuals of individuals? Yeah, I mean, well, like in a in a really kind of historical way, do you think? I hope so. In a yeah, what do you think? Though? <laughs> yeah. I, of course, we hope so. But what do you think? Like, like you're in there, you're working there, you're dealing with it, you're seeing the pushback, you're seeing how it works, and is is it when you look at it, do you see it working and and actually? forming a genuine change or, you know, like a, a wave of change, let's say, that has long longevity. Definitely. I mean, if you take it back, um, I don't know, if you want to take, for example, Dubai, Dubai as, uh, as, as a time point, for the last 30 years, you've been seeing the blossoming of different special economic zones around the world. Uh, ever so, um, including even more rights for the individuals, because they perhaps started, uh, you know, you had the free zones from 50 years ago, which were basically just uh, tax, uh, tax exempted zones. But now you have, well, the 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 Senate regime in Honduras is is, is I'm, I'm I'm confident of saying one of the best that there is, uh, given the whole empowerment that it allows from the individuals that want to be a part of it. But aside from that, uh, you got multiple examples. You got uh, right right um, close to here. You got the the free zones of Costa Rica. You got uh, the free port of Colón in Panama or or Panama Pacific in Panama, uh, and a whole bunch of of of, of different ones. Uh, Come, um, you know, developing in in Africa. Uh, actually, us, the bank is is part of the next fifty 
um, Africa movement from Charter Cities Institute helping develop this type of special economic zones in Africa. And you've seen a lot, of course, in Asia, there's one in Oman, uh, the whole things that the Saudis are doing. So I, I do think it's getting traction uh, because they work. Uh, because they have been able to, you know, develop countries and they have been able to serve as legal frameworks for pro appropriate uh, institutions, for appropriate, um, you know, legal environments. Okay, the, um, the devil's advocate in me says that, or most people I know listening to you say that will say that's all very well, but anything that threatens the hegemony of a, of a state... In the end, the state's going to try and shut it down. So, so how how nervous are we supposed to be about the potential of something like that happening? The thing is, um, well, at, at the at the start of all of them, there's of course going to be um, you know a period where they're going to be a bit fragile. But if time goes by and they do work and and people see they work and and, and people go live there and work there then I think it's it becomes politically unviable for the powers that be, for the governments in, 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 in whichever country, to actually oppose them. And I think that the, the central governments just could look at them as tools for them, right? If they succeed, they can succeed too. They can, you know, deliver to... Uh, to their citizens, they can get, they can then get reelected if they work. They can get, you know, fresh capital from taxes that they can get out of them. So I think that's and that's what China did in a way, right? With with a lot of them, there's special economic zones. You, you use them as tools, um, and in time, if they work out, they can also influence in a good way the laws from the ordinary regime in the country, right? Um, so, so yeah. So okay then. In I don't know, let's say fifty years time, how do you describe what exists at Prosper according to you in fifty years? Physically, the 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 platform of Prosper. How do you actually see it? I mean, like you're you're obviously pretty um, confident that it's it's happening now, but what is it? What does it look like when it reaches its? Um, I don't know. Pinnacle is the wrong word when it when it's big enough that it's a, a, a large number of the goals that was initially set out have been achieved, which is obviously you're in the building stage now. There's mm -hmm. the idea stage is finished here, which well, I mean, obviously it hasn't finished, but the idea stage is over. It's now the the enforcing the ideas, putting the ideas into practice, and they're actually being built, which is phenomenal. But when it when it arrives at that point where it's like okay yeah this is the majority of what we had in mind what does that look like for you like what's life like living there what's what are people doing you know what does it look like even paradise on earth <laughs> what's that okay well what does that mean like one man's paradise is another man's uh, hell is it just like <laughs> no definitely well yeah i mean if, if if the guarantees are respected and we are allowed to work for 50 years as we you know are intended to uh, I do see a very prosperous island in general, a very prosperous Rotan. This is a great mix of people, a great, a great mix of cultures, of resilient people, of very creative people. And if they just have the proper legal framework, uh, then there's you know no limit to what can blossom with you know the right, uh, forward-looking, efficient, uh, respectful 
the regulations that are in place in Prospera. So what I would I would be looking at, I wouldn't say Dubai because Dubai is like uh, filled with skyscrapers and whatnot. No, I, I'd, I'd say more of an idyllic place. You have very nice buildings, very nice architecture, very clean streets, uh, very um, sustainable energy, very sustainable practices very in touch with nature around very in touch with the ecosystem with the with the coral reef and uh just a place where opportunities can actually grow or oh, where, where we have you know an interesting rates of, of of growth and and development and hopefully also by in 50 years have also influenced some of the you know bad practices from the Honduran ordinary regime or the central american countries in general so yeah i'd say i'd say it's a bright future according to your what you know and your research on other similar projects around the world would you say that um, prosper is the most advanced in its implementation of these these kind of ideas definitely it's like it's these ideas are not new, right? Uh, there's been a lot of special economic zones around the world, but the way they mix them uh, here with the with the legal framework in Prospera, I think it's pretty quite unique and it's pretty quite um, you know ambitious in the way they actually took the best practices from around the world, uh, but without it being government backed, right? So that's a double-edged sword. You don't have you know, steady flow from a government like they had in South Korea or in China or or whatnot. But that also means you you have to think better about the investments. You have more skin in the game from from the prosperous standpoint, uh, and from 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 us too, and from all of the, of the startups and and developments that have that that are going on. You have more skin in the game. You you're more exposed, but also that makes you be more careful and more more thorough in the work that you're doing. Um. What, what was it? I, I, I've got another question already. Anyway, I'm just thinking. Like, I, I was, I was, it, it was. You were making me wonder what. Um, you've been not working on it for one year, did you say? You're in your first year, uh, like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been working on the bank for a year and a half, but we've been working on the Senate regime for you know eight years, ten years. Right. Okay. So you're you're pretty deep into the to the process. You must be one of the more experienced people with ZAs as it as they go. Is that right? That could be yeah, in Honduras. That could be fair to say. I mean, when it started back ten years, we were I wasn't in law school, right? Uh, we went to law school actually with Jorge, with uh, the technical secretary from Prosper, and this just this started as a dream, right? This all started as a dream. And um, I remember we, we were at, at some bar in, in San Pedro Sula and mainland just talking about it. How is it that, how would, like be, us being lawyers, right, or, or, or law students back then, uh, how would it actually work? Because you have in, in one same territory, you can have different legal frameworks working around it. With, you know, what, what Prosper offers, you can have uh, the legal framework from one of the 30 OCDE countries, or you can even propose your own regulation that has to be approved, of course. Uh, but how would, it, how would it actually work? So, so it was very exciting for us actually thinking about it and theorizing around it. Um, and then, well, of course, we were in law school. There was a lot of time available to always be reading, and and, and those were very intense times for me, well, for him too, I'm sure. Um, and it, 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 it stuck with me, it still sticks with me, Something in Friedrich Hayek, um, I think it's called the political ideal of the state. 
um, where he says at some point, which is that's basically a transcription of seminars from him, but he says at some point that for him, the ideal legal framework for a country would be uh, a country which the default legal framework is more akin to continental law because continental law does a better job in you know preventing um, legal um, uh, you know legal vortices legal vacuums you know it's better at foreseeing more possible scenarios but it also gives a lot of you know leeway to the interpretation of the judges right uh, but he, he, either way he sees that the best scenario is having the country a country with default continental law but with special pockets with small pockets uh, that apply uh, a, a variation of common law because common law can be more flexible can be more innovation inclined and can give more certainty given you know case law and whatnot uh, so that idea just stuck with me and something that he said I don't know in the 70s or something um and it's like we could actually do it yeah is your vision in the distant future then that zas exist in myriad forms all over the world is that the is that the end game here or or is there a, is there a, in the future is there a room for anything in the future or are we hoping that the future holds many decentralized cities or or areas or you know yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking that in the future, there's, there's going to be a struggle between both the current that wants more supranational structures, right? Supranational entities, uh, the UN and things regarding uh, that, but also another movement struggling with it, which is these, you know, decentralized structures, decentralized zones. There's already over 4,000 special economic zones around the world, all of them different, all with their own characteristics. But I think that increasingly you are seeing um, that the new special economic zones are even more decentralized than what they used to be, are even more empowering for people, for individuals. And I think this is particularly attractive for, you know, uh, countries in, de in, uh, in developing situations. Particularly developing situations. Yes, I mean, yeah, especially countries in development. I mean, in the U.S. and and and, and you have there are uh, special economic zones in the U.S. I mean, I do. I've been watching closely what they're doing in the Catawba special economic zone in North Carolina. Um, uh, what is what are they doing there? I've never heard of that before. It's it's really cool. It's really cool actually because it's like you have the, you know, the the Indian nations. Uh, they have a lot of autonomy to to enact their own laws um, and they have used it sporadically in isolated scenarios you have of course like you know, the famous native american casinos and native american whatnot but this is the first time in in which they're actually using this autonomy and this if you want to say sovereignty <laughs> within their their reservations to actually enact a special economic zone. So you got the Catawba Nation, which is a Native American nation in North Carolina, um, enacting a, di a digital, I understand only for now, a digital special economic zone, which is actually fairly, um, you know, has a lot of things in common with Prosper. Um, so, but is, is it is it a physical manifestation or is it purely the the you know, the governance? Are they are they are they do, do they have a vision like within Prosper, which is not just Okay, let's set up a zone and try and attract business. 
it's like no let's set up a zone and let's set up a city let's start let's you know, start to build the whole thing is it the same in, in north carolina is it or is it just you know i think it's it's more digitally oriented for now it's 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 younger it's a bit younger than prospera but they do have land i mean they do have the available space so um if if it all goes well i i don't see why not why why wouldn't they start also building more physical spaces but yeah for for now it's more digitally oriented what do you how many other what in un, unusual and unknown versions of this do you know around the world then oh well uh there's just yeah, a bunch of different ones i, I was uh, I was recently a couple months ago in in Colombia. They're also developing one in Cartagena. Uh, that's in very very early stages. That's in very very early stages. But there was there, there was an agreement with municipal and provincial authorities in Cartagena with uh, the Dubai Financial Center. Um, apparently, there's 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 an important Arab uh, population in in the Cartagena in the Cartagena region. Uh, so they got an agreement with the authorities from Dubai, and they're working towards something. Uh, in, in 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 this, you know, something similar to to the Ceres and the whole special economic zones and free cities movements. So that's a, that. I think it's a very interesting one. And um, well, you got some some going on in Africa. You got the one next to Lagos in Nigeria. There's one that I know that was being developed in Oman. I'm not sure how that's doing. But yeah, I got this different bits and pieces of people that actually, you know, looking into something that has worked, that has lifted countries out of out of poverty can you just from from you know from my understanding here break down the different versions of zones economic zones that you get free cities that you get there, there kind of seem to be a, a number of categories of them there's those that are specifically just offering good tax breaks for example mm -hmm. but then at the other end of the spectrum you've got places like here really which is a whole idea of a new way of living and a completely parallel reality, almost, <laughs> um, and and everything in between. I suppose is are there any are there any ways you can kind of categorize the different types? I think there are people that have done a much better job than myself at classifying them. I do know that Adrianopo Group has done a great job, even with maps, with interactive maps. Uh, about the different special economic zones around the world. But it basically comes down to, you know, how much autonomy do they have um, in comparison with the ordinary regime of the country they're in and how much involvement does the central government have in them. Of course, here in, in, in Prospera, it's, uh, you know, the extreme. It's very autonomous. It has no involvement from the central government. But you can have, you know, things that are more in the middle, uh, for example, what 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 happened in 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 South Korea, the the government uh, invested directly into the special economic zones, or you have scenarios where the government has a last say uh, in relation to the applicable regulations, or or they they have some sort of overseeing body. Um, but yes, yeah, basically it's gradual, right? You you got like the tax exempted zones, and then you have Dubai or Prosper. And according to you, then, what would be your preferred way of doing it? I'm I'm pretty happy with the way we're doing it here. To be quite frank, um, I, I I think that there there are things that could have been better along the way. I think that there could be there could have been some changes to the law, and I do think we uh, the whole process could have been more, you know, more socialized with the public in general. I think that was a big problem. 
Um, How do you mean? More consultation? Well, not necessarily consultation. I mean, there, there can be obligations for consultation uh, if you're close to, for example, indigenous lands and whatnot. And uh, yeah, that could have been a, a possibility going to, to a referendum or whatnot. But in general, just be more open on what, about what you're doing, about what you want to achieve. Uh, of course, the legal part of it is very important. It's, you know, it's the most important basis for all of it. But uh, I think the, to legitimize the, the the project in front of the general public is, is also very important for any type of special economic zones that wants to be developed. Because even if even if it's if, if everything is being done right, like it has been done here, uh, you also want for everybody in the country to know how right it's being done. Why, why wasn't that so then here? Uh, uh, I think it was, it was just a matter of that the last government, the last couple of governments, which, you know, under which this started, uh, in time, they made a lot of mistakes with other, um, policies that they were enacting and they just didn't give too much priority to the, to the setters. And w- w- along the way, when they were ready to start operating, the last government was very, um, you know, uh, it had it, it had a long run and it was not so well looked upon by the people so you know the opportunity was lost along the way and now that we are actually operating it has been more of an education process for everyone that the last government didn't di- didn't do because it had to be politically motivated at the start right what would you say then is the current situation with the public's perception of a ZA. If you were to look across the board in Honduras, the the average person on the street, what's the current, um, what's their current perception? I think people really want jobs. People really want opportunities. People want to invest. They want to have their small businesses, and they want a legal environment that permits it. And along the way, as the cities have been growing, as more people have been, you know, started working in, in, in either of the three of them, uh, and, and, you know, how everything has been done well, the perception has started to change. Um, so I think it's getting a lot better. There were some uh, polls also from Sid Gallup from some months ago, which, you know, said exactly this, that people were more interested in keeping investment coming in, having opportunities for decent, dig, uh, dignified uh, works, uh, uh, work opportunities. So I do think it has gotten a lot better. There's still people that have reservations about it. There's still people that are very confused about it and hence are against it. Um, but I, I think it has started to change. Uh, and hopefully that general public perception that has started to change would also translate to, uh, you know, different political stances from what have been political opponents to it. Um, Since you've been involved for so long, over the years, what's been the most compelling argument against ZAs that you've come across? The one that made you think, okay, you know, that's, there's a, there's a decent point in there, or there's, there's something to that, or not just pure misinformation or, or whatever. What, if at all, maybe you don't know one. Or... I uh, not really. <laughs> Is it because I've actually gotten into it? I've actually gotten into studying it. But I mean, perhaps there could have been, uh, you know, the whole the the expropriation articles in the law. Nobody liked that. I didn't like that. Nobody wanted that. So, and, and that and was some. What, of... what, can you just expand on that? What, what was that? 
Yes. And in the Settle Law, uh, there were a couple of articles that said that the the Cetis, uh could start expropriation processes for, you know, uh, which is basically eminent domain, right? Uh, for lands that they would deem to be of, you know, public importance for its development, basically. And that was wrong for several reasons. First, because they didn't have to include it. I mean, the government can, you know, uh, claim eminent domain at any time, uh, you know, given after following a due process and, you know, uh, establishing a proper price for whatever you're going to expropriate. Um, so it wasn't necessary to put it. This, uh, the Ceres are not and have never been able to do it directly. If in any case they would want to, they would need to go through, you know, the appropriate government bodies. And uh, the third point is it really, I mean, aside from that, it wasn't needed if, if it actually would, would, if anybody would have actually wanted to do it, uh, it wasn't really something that the investors and the people building actually wanted to have either. Because if you're actually buying the land, you can just, you know, um, plan accordingly. You don't need to expropriate anybody and you don't want to have either like a legal framework um, that wants to attract people because it's in a place where nobody lives, um, where you want to attract people and people would have the possibility of being expropriated, right? That's not good business. And what happened along the way was, you know, the regulating body, the the Committee for the Adoption of Best Practices set out reg regulations, uh, making very clear that that article from the law was not applicable, that they would never approve it. And internally, the set has also put out regulations saying that they would never do it, uh, which are legally binding. But the damage had been done, right? So why was it even there then? Was that just a, a mistake or a bad... Someone didn't read the room and just put it and in bas there? Basically, I'd say, yeah, somebody didn't read the room and perhaps were being, they were being just too technical. This Because the set is basically... It's um it's a division for you know territorial organization which is equivalent to a municipality to like a, say a district in the United States, um, and and you know municipalities can expropriate, you know if you want to build a road you want to make the road high, uh, broader you you gotta you know uh, follow the process for I mean in domain and whatnot but it, it's not actually something that's commonly done you know it, it's it's a process that takes years to do. So uh, there was no need to include it. Isn't uh, isn't expropriation a little bit um, running against the eth ethos of uh, a free city, in, uh, in as much as property rights are extremely important? Exactly, so. exactly. Nobody wanted that. Nobody, nobody, nobody in the movement wanted that. Nobody from the investors wanted that. So that's why afterwards, you know, uh, internal regulations was put forth to to write out prohibited uh, because it, it's, 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 it's not good for the development of liberty and prosperity, right? Uh, nobody wants that. It's, uh, it's a blatant attempt against property rights, against individual rights. And uh, as it stands, like the whole legal framework for Prospera has the strongest um, protections for individual rights in, in the whole of Central America. So, yeah, that was a no-go with the vision that has been established here. So now, currently, those they're, they're, they're included or not, those expropriation? The articles are still in the law. 
but like you have the law well and under it you have the internal regulations from each setters right and so the prospera has put has set out internal regulations prohibiting it and you know legally assuring everybody that they won't be able to actually do it uh which is great you know, which is you know very in line with the whole legal framework that legal framework that has been developed but it, it did cause some controversy along the way is there something about the governance model of prospera that is extremely innovative other than the very obvious ones that people are always talking about something that you might pick up on as someone that's a little bit more involved um the i i do think it's the whole and this is especially interesting and especially valuable for uh companies from regulated sectors like us like the bank um which is the fact that you can decide from one of the 30 ocde uh from from one of 30 ocde countries uh the regulation that you want to apply to yourself say in this case a bank a financial institution or, for example, the companies like Minicircle, like Garm, that are from the medical sector, they have also taken a lot of advantage out of this. And, well, let's say that it's very straightforward, right? Um, the regulation from one of these 30 OCDE countries. But then you also have the possibility of proposing the regulation that you want to apply for yourself. That's pretty unique. That's pretty avant-garde around the world. And that's actually what we did. So the only thing I don't <coughs> fully understand about that is who decides whether that new proposed regulation is um, better, like say, than, than what's already on offer? Presumably it has to be deemed a better yeah. version. So how do you work that out? I mean, like, how do you judge something as being better? Well, uh, according to the law, it has to be in par with international best practices from one of these 30 OCDE countries and at least as uh, including as much the protection from the laws in the Honduran ordinary regime. But I can tell you about like from for taking it down to earth, right, um, how we did it. So we 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 had we had started working at the bank. We had started working on you know the fundamentals. We had started working on the core software, and and whatnot. Um, and we decided that Prospera was the best jurisdiction in Latin America to to start building the bank. Uh, so now we need a law. We could have we could have taken you know uh, laws from any European country or from the or from any state in the U.S. Um, which we did in a way. So this is what we did, right? We proposed uh, a legal body, which became eventually what is now the Financial Regulation A, um, with basically four sections. One, a description of the type of banks, the type of licenses, the processes for, you know, getting a bank authorized. And uh that's one section, which is very similar to what is in the in the Honduran ordinary regime and in other Latin American countries. Nothing too crazy. Then we needed a section regarding uh, the prevention of money laundering, right? Prevention of money laundering and and uh, financing of terrorism. We don't want to get too creative in that either, but we don't want to be under the traditional regulations in the region, of course, for you know obvious reasons. So what we did is we adapted the Banking Secrecy Act from the United States, the BSA, which is basically the anti-money laundering law in the States, and we, um, you know, we adapted it to the Prospera reality. 
so that gave a lot of certainty, a lot of clarity to investors, to customers, to regulators, and to you know business partners, our correspondent banks and whatnot. So I think that worked really, really well. Uh, the third section of the law was regarding the liquidity requirements and the risk weighting of assets, which is actually the part in which we we got a bit more creative. We were inspired by The End of Alchemy, um, a book by Mervyn King. Uh, Mervyn King was uh, a governor from the Bank of England, from you know the UK Central Bank. And he includes um, basically a different system to address what he calls radical uncertainty. This is after you know the crisis in 2008. Uh, and what he proposes is instead of having the traditional system that secures liquidity in banks, which is you have, uh, you know, pretty stiff um, risk considerations for different types of assets uh, based on the recommendations from Basel. And you have a lender of last resort, right? If the bank goes bankrupt, there's some government agency that secures, you know, the deposits from the public. Uh which is all right, but has also, it didn't prevent the crisis from 2008. Basically, the banks weren't able to uh, to respond as quickly to this radical uncertainty and change the risk weighting of their type of assets, in this case, the mortgages, right? Um, so what Mervyn Kinn proposes is basically, instead of having a lender of last resort, he proposes having a lender for all, what he calls a lender for all seasons, a third-party lender, which is constantly assessing uh, the risk weighting of the type of assets on a, say, monthly basis. Uh, so that allows a more dynamic scenario and event, you know, finally a more secure scenario for customers and depositors. Uh, so we included that in the law. If we don't have the third, if the bank doesn't have the third-party lender, then it goes back, of course, to the traditional system with pretty conservative uh, risk weighting of assets. Uh, but I think that that that's where we got more creative. And the fourth section is just basically uh, liquidation procedures, very standard international liquidation procedures. Uh, so we proposed this to, to Prospera to the Prospera Council. And then the Prospera Council got, you know, a series of, of, of experts, you know, national and international lawyers, econom economists, uh, bankers to chip in, right, to give their opinion about what, have, what had been proposed. There were several changes made. And if, after that, after the Prospera Council approved it, you know, after the changes had been made, then the camp, which is the, the regulator of the status, which just says just says yes or no, approves or disapproves new regulation. They went over it. They approved it also. It got published. It got made into law. And now we are bringing that law to life. And presumably now that law is available to anyone, that regulatory framework. Exactly. So any, any bank can now look at that public. It's completely, you know, come here and apply those regulations to their business immediately and run according to those exactly uh exactly because you got new banks coming or new financial institutions coming and they again they have the opportunity of choosing uh the regulations from one of 30 ocde countries they can propose a new one or they can just select the financial regulation were there any 
<clears throat> regulatory ideas that you had, which you just feel or felt at the time that no, these are too out there, too early. <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you, where do you want to take it in that sense from your own perspective? Oh, no, I think I, I think we got the sweet spot because like, well, you know, the banking industry is based on trust and regulation. So you do need some some regulation put in place uh, for everybody to feel safe and feel comfortable. Perhaps I may, you know, uh, on a personal note, think that the there could be best international practices regarding anti-money laundering. But that's not the sort of thing that you want to get too creative about either. So I think it was a good middle point for, you know, having uh, an, an avant-garde framework, you know, a very advanced, a very forward-looking framework that, you know, permits the use of cryptocurrencies, for example, um, and, and includes them as an internal part of the framework. Uh, Can you elaborate on that a bit? How, how do you say, how do you incorporate Bitcoin, for example, in your in your banking model in an internal way. What does that mean? All right. We cannot, I mean, we can, but we do not, we will not hold Bitcoin just because of still the volatility of it and it can cause us liquidity requirement problems, right? right? But we can accept Bitcoin and then change it immediately to a stable coin, right? Be it USDC, USDT, whatever. And the thing is that the frame, the, the legal framework, the legal environment in Prospera treats uh, a series of cryptocurrencies, which is basically Bitcoin, DAI, USDT, USDC, Ether, I think I might be missing one, but but those are treated as legal tender, right? Um, in Prospera. So, in Prospera. That's interesting. So, right. So Bitcoin's legal tender in Prospera then, officially? Acts as legal tender. What does that mean? What's the difference? That you cannot, I mean, you are not obligated to accept it. It's not mandatory to accept it. It's voluntary because, again, we want to do a very voluntary society. Uh, but it gets treated as legal tender in the sense that it's not taxed. It's right. not taxed as an asset or as a security. Um, all of these, right? Uh, Bitcoin, Ether, the stable coins, um, they're not taxed as securities or as assets. They are treated fiscally um, as again, legal tender, as it was uh, legal tender currency, and you can pay the governance services with it. Right. Yeah. I didn't know that. So it, the only difference between legal tender and as legal tender is legal tender is enforced. Exactly. Right. Okay. So so that, so and in other banks, what's the current normal regulation or the most across the board regulation um, it, with regards to Bitcoin, say, for example, and holding Bitcoin or take accepting Bitcoin. Is that normal for a bank to just be able to accept Bitcoin? Or I don't I have no idea. But. Well, it's, Bitcoin is always tricky because of the volatility. And, and again, because of the liquidity requirement. Just the legality of, of, of accepting it. or The legality of accepting. I mean, you can have you have actually you have banks given, of course, custodial services. They tend to give it, for example, through uh, a different entity, perhaps not specifically through the banking vehicle, they, they uh, incorporate a different entity just for the, the Bitcoin holding, but it can be a service. And you hold it basically as you hold gold, right? As you hold an asset or as you hold securities. 
generally speaking, in, in other jurisdictions. I do think, however, that we are seeing regarding Bitcoin specifically uh, a very a very nice shift because they have just accepted it that it is it is a decentralized asset. Gary Gensler from the Security and Exchange Commission in the states has said as much. I mean, they're they're in um they're being very rigorous with the other crypto assets, right? Which are, you know, most of them are quite frankly securities. securities yeah. uh, but they are leaving Bitcoin alone because there is no issuer. There is, you know, it, it is a truly decentralized asset. So it's been, that's the tendency, I think, uh, also with the European regulators to consider it, just let it be, right? It's just an asset. What do you, so what's your own personal opinion on um, the route that Bitcoin takes into the future then currently? I mean, how do you see it? How do you see it? Do you see it ending up as a reserve asset or as a currency that used on a day-to-day basis? Or, you know, as someone who's in the banking sector and in a, in a kind of quite quite interesting area of the banking sector as well, you, know, you, you, you potentially have the opportunity to really sort of dive into these kind of things, whereas a lot of banks probably are leaving it alone still. Yeah, yeah, it's been, of course, having done interesting assessments for, for you know, the bank and, and, and even before it for other banks and, and financial institutions, it's I do definitely see it as a, as reserve technology, um, you know, as, as a long-term asset. Uh, it, it truly has behaved that way and it has proven that it, it does work that way. Um, given, you know, all of the characteristics that I'm sure our listeners know, how it's scarce, how it's immutable, how it's unconfiscable. Um, and I see it also as a payment technology. It's just payment technology uh, that can get better. Rates can get better <laughs> uh, across the board. Uh, but it's still like, for example, we at the bank, we at the bank, we, of course, are going to have like, you know, the ability, customers are going to be able to do international SWIFT transfers. Um, but like on a personal level, you know, depending on where you're sending the money and whatnot, you it, it might be more convenient for you just to send a lightning transfer, right? Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, and even not even accepting Bitcoin at the end of that lightning transaction. I mean, that's essentially how in... I spend quite a lot of time in El Salvador and um, I'm often paying with Bitcoin, but the, 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 the people I'm paying are receiving dollars. Using mm-hmm. the, they're using the payment rails of Bitcoin because it's so simple and easy and free, essentially. Mm-hmm. But there's a Forex exchange happening very briefly before they, they, they see the result arriving in their wallet. And that's understandable, especially in somewhere like El Salvador where... Um, I wouldn't, you know, I'm a huge Bitcoiner, but I would, I would necessarily wouldn't necessarily say, keep your Bitcoin if you're someone who's running a small business on a street selling pupusas, mm-hmm. and, and because the volatility is too risky if you're a business owner still. If you're, if you've got a lot of savings and you're happy to to sit them set them aside for fifteen years, I think perfect. Bitcoin's the perfect vehicle at the moment from from my perspective, but. Um, I see the payment network as being the really exciting thing at the moment because um, that's where I, you know, having spent a lot of time in El Salvador, that's where I see it being used. I was imagining, okay, Bitcoin's legal tender. Everyone's going to be sending Bitcoin to each other. But actually, no, they're using the Bitcoin network to send value. And, you know, from, but they want to keep a digital, like a USDT or a dollar if they can. 
um, because that's the the money of the day to day transaction. And I was just wondering, do you think do you think uh, what's the do you think there's a future in um, Bitcoin as as money? I do eventually, potentially, possibly in the future. I've been getting into uh, you know the writings and ideas of George Selgin, this uh, you know monetary economist. Well, he's he's an economist in, <laughs> with other works in other fields, but I've been getting into that part of his work, and which is I don't think Bitcoin is as of now money. I do think it's great technology. I, I am bullish on Bitcoin. I do love Bitcoin, uh, but I don't think it's quite yet money just because of the fact that, like you said, like what like what happens in El Salvador. People rather, because of the volatility that it still has, people rather not use it for its day-to-day expenses. In time, um, as you know, it, it stabilizes and as more people use it and as more people get educated about it, it, it could become money. Uh, but yeah, I think it's an important element for any asset to be money. Uh, it's an important element to that everybody feels comfortable using, using it right for every day-to-day expenses. But presumably in your bank, it's been something to concern yourself with when you're looking at setting up a bank and regulations and the potential to have new regulations that, you know, newer versions of regulations. Was that an important part of it, considering Bitcoin and what that potentially, you know, could mean? Or is it just a side thought? It's like, okay. No, no, not a side thought uh, at all. Again, I mean, we cannot hold directly uh, Bitcoin, but we cannot, you know, be ignorant about it. We cannot uh, ignore it. I mean, it's not possible to ignore it anymore. And, uh, you know, different banks around the world have different approaches to it. But I don't think it would be wise to any bank or to any financial institution to not pay attention to what's going on. What about custodianship of it, of, of BTC? Is that something, what do you see the bank's roles with regards to Bitcoin in the future, if at all? I mean, is there is there a role for a bank in a decentralized payment network? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's that like, for example, we're, we're seeing ourselves more of a software company, right, with a banking license. Um, so one of the big differentiators for us is, you know, being being easy by design, being friendly by design. Um, and the opportunities of customizing your experience with the bank through our API, or if I may say so, our very powerful API. So in time, working towards a marketplace based on the bank's payment rails, and then, you know, implementing very good tools and, you know, AI considerations for risk assessments and for loan positioning and whatnot. I mean, there are a lot of banking activities that I do think are still very, you, you know, very important and very legitimate in, in, in a society, uh, but are more, but I'd say are more oriented to these other things than just payments. Uh, I mean, I do think that uh, the facility, the, you know, the advantages that Bitcoin and other crypto assets uh, allow or offer people for 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 payment opportunities cannot be ignored and could be um, maybe I don't want to say should be but perhaps perhaps should be incorporated in the banking experience right so don't just have like many of legacy banks uh, in the region don't just have you know your the same account experience for any for all of your customers I mean if you, if you're a shoemaker 
or you're a banana plantation or you're just an everyday guy, you have the same exact bank account than everybody else, the same experience. Um, and now that crypto assets offer uh, so many opportunities for payment solutions, hey, perhaps you... Uh, could incorporate that, incorporate them as possible, but also, um, you know, give more attention to other banking activities or to other banking solutions, give better loans, have better escrow systems, you know, have better connectivity and better customization of your experience in the bank. Yeah. I've, I mean, I, I see a real similarity between <clears throat> a lot of the ideals of Zetes and, and of Bitcoin. I mean, they're, they're, it's about decentralizing. Um, it's about um, free. It's about freedom to opt in. It's not enforced. It's not an enforced currency. It's not. You're not born and and, and instantly have to spend Bitcoin. You can you can opt into it if you want. Do you see a lot of crossover on the the Venn diagram of 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 you know free cities and 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 Bitcoin? A lot. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a natural fit, actually. Um, of course, it, it all depends on what you want to achieve, right, with a special economic zone. But I like the ideal would be to just have to just have people be free regarding the currency that they want to use. Right. And how what about the notion that um, once again, um, no central authority can feel comfortable around Bitcoin? It, it's not possible. I mean, it's it it, it it can't. You know. I mean, I wonder what goes. I, I I do wonder what going through the minds of powerful institutions at the moment who have businesses based around the notion of of you know, well, credit creation, um, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> all these kind of things. You know, um, you know. Does I don't know. It, do you have an opinion on on how that plays out? Like you said, Gary Ginsler and and the institutions have just learned to accept it. And it, within that notion, there's the point that there's nothing they can do about it either. It's like <laughs> it's not that they sat down there and said, "Let's let this thing happen." You know, it's like they didn't have a choice, and no one's really admitting that out loud. I don't think not yet. I think it's been uttered a few times that in a few, you know. SEC, I don't know, whatever they have those panels and stuff, and someone you know, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. But it's not something that anyone wants to admit out loud because it's quite a damning um, <laughs> fact, really. But um, do you see how that? You have any ideas according to you how that might play out? Um, you know, I think it's going to be a very interesting decade, the the burning twenties. Uh, because you are seeing them uh, start fighting against it. Of course, it's too late. You're not going to stop it. You can't unplug it. Perhaps they could have, you know, down. Perhaps they could have done some damage back in the day, back in 2012 or whatever. But they cannot stop Bitcoin right now. Um, there's no stopping it. But they are. They are going to fight against it. I mean, the CBDCs are coming, which I think it's it's just terrifying the implications of it. Um, but and I think there may be there some campaigns against Bitcoin, some misinformation may be coming, you know, well, has always been there. But now that they feel more cornered and more threatened by it, um, I think it's it's going to be a, a an intense decade. That's interesting that you 
you work at a a bank or you're working you you co-own the bank is that right yeah yet you're terrified of cbdc's um is that how how prevalent is that amongst the banking world because for me personally i look at cbdc's and go this is horrendous dystopian surveillance technology i don't want anything to do with it it's it's the it's like the final boss of authoritarianism literally once once this system is implemented the sovereign individual is in deep trouble so but but obviously banks are banks this your business model and certainly there'll be a role for banks those kind of banks to play not central banks but your kind of banks will have a role so presumably people must be behind the idea in the banking fraternity is that not right i mean for us just from a business standpoint we're going to have to roll with whatever comes right i mean uh at the end of the day we're going to have if if cbdc's do uh, become mainstream uh, which i think is is going to be the intention during the next decade we're going to have to work around it we're going to have to work with it um but i do i do think it's it's a big threat a big threat to you know personal freedom and personal privacy and whatnot um so perhaps for us you know because at the end of the day it is a business for us right but what we could do is also offer spaces of for people to again decide what they want to do you know they want to use the cbdc dollar the cbdc pound well you can do it presumably a cbdc will be legal tender as in enforced legal tender is that right that yeah so is there any regulatory framework that you can create which says which would class the cbdc as uh, as like um, like you know, like I mean, to give like the thing about ZAs is one part of the deep ethos of a ZA is that you have the the choice, the opt in choice, right? So, is there possible to opt into your currency as well within a ZA? Currently, no, I would imagine. Yeah, not not in a mandatory way, but I mean, if you want to uh, exchange, uh, if you want to work with, I don't know, whatever Swiss francs, and people want to accept it, I mean, there's there's nobody will stop but, you. But what about paying? Your taxes, for example. I mean, isn't the payment of taxes the way you kind of enforce, a, you know, it's what gives the currency value, isn't it? Like, because you're basically at gunpoint forced to use that currency. When the government requires tax, you can't pay tax in anything but, say, US dollars if you're an American. And therefore, everyone has to use US dollars, which helps the the, 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 um, the value. This is part of the reason why it's a something that everyone wants because they're forced to use it. I mean, in Azeli, does it work like that? Like, can you, can you, you said that you could, you're not, you're not mandated to pay in anything. Like when you pay your taxes, um, I had, on a side note, how does it work with taxes? You're, who gets the taxes in Azeli, for example? Uh, the there's a set the set itself there's a, like a tax collecting agency within the set a fraction of that goes to the central government right okay and if I so you presumably you can't if you said I could pay my taxes in Bitcoin if I was living in a city yeah and the set here uh, I believe they accept the dollars of course the Honduran currency the Lempira and then Bitcoin the stable coins and ether but but the 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 Honduran government only accepts Lempiras. Right, okay. So so <coughs> so okay. 
Yeah, I mean, you can work around it. Like, for example, if uh, in time government uh, governments decide that their, you know, their currency CBDC needs to be ex- needs to be the only one accepted for paying taxes, when then you know the individuals have to work around it. When you, I need to pay taxes, well, then for paying the taxes, and I can, I can acquire some CBDC. Uh, but that, I think the role for the bank is uh, the role, the healthy role for a bank is, of course, adapt for whenever the CBDCs roll out. But give the options to the customers. You want to use the CBDC dollar, or perhaps you want to use USDT, for example. What do you? What's your opinion on the actual viability of a CBDC? I personally, I, I'm not a hugely um, knowledgeable finance person, but I have spoken to people who have said. According to them, it's almost impossible to roll this thing out and for it to work. Have you ever heard any anything like that? It's. I mean, it's gonna be like. I think that the first version is not going to be like too harmful. It's just going to be basically a stable coin. Um, but I am worried about the implications five years, five year, five years from now, ten years from now. Like, of course, they're gonna want to make it seamless. For people like people are not going to even notice there's just going to be dollars in your bank account and uh, it's going to be very hard i mean it's going to be very hard to get to that point from a technical standpoint but i don't think it's impossible like basically like you have your electronic money right now which is basically just an annotation in, in your bank's ledger uh but if it gets, you know, if it gets really bad, it's going to be basically that this, what are now annotations in your bank's ledger, are going to be directly CBDCs, which are going to be, you know, directly monitored and controlled by uh, the pertinent central central bank. And presumably programmed as well. Presumably, yeah. Um, have the bank, the central banks at all hinted to your kind of bank what role they anticipate you will play when a CBDC comes out? Because if they're issuing the currency directly from the central bank to you and I, I thought that was the role of the of a, the bank, your kind of bank, not the central bank. I mean, that's partly your role now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, not, not just us. I mean, in general, that yeah. that's part of the roles of banks, right? So, what would it be under a CBDC then? What would the role of your bank be? I mean, if if if, if a central bank wants us to stop and and man again and mandates us legally. To stop, for example, um, providing electronic money as it exists today, as annotations and ledgers, and wants us to change that to CBDCs, I, I don't see how we can how we can stop them. But uh, in a free legal environment, we would at least be able to also offer different options, right? Of all different crypto assets. Now that's interesting. So <clears throat> possibly then one of the like say there was. I'm not sure this could ever happen, but the notion that a a government will ban the use of Bitcoin, for example, if the Honduran government banned it, what would be the implication within a ZA? Would you have to stop using it as well? Or would your own regulatory framework mean that you could continue? This is best not, uh, this is a territory best not to delve into. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, <laughs> maybe I'll talk to you off the record then, because that is, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, super interesting. Okay, well, look, we've been talking for, blimey, an hour and a quarter. Um, I'll, I've got one last question. Thanks for all that information. That's great. Um, 
And this is a question we ask everyone that comes, that, that we speak to on this podcast. And um, go something like this. This is a kind of, um, you have to imagine that next year, in for one year, you have a sabbatical, okay? During that time, all your expenses, everything is covered. You don't have to worry about anything. What would you do in that year? What would you devote your time to? I'd say scuba diving and pottery. Uh, yeah, I, I do like sculpturing in my free time and perhaps some some something else uh, art related, perhaps setting up a, a theater company for kids or something. Really? Yeah. Interesting. <coughs> Is that something you plan doing in the future then? Actually, yeah, actually, yeah. Actually, in, in here in Roatan, we've been, you know, discussing in very early stages, perhaps setting up a, a theater company for, you know, local kids, for them to have a, you know, a platform for expressing themselves and explore other opportunities. Why that in particular? Why 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 acting or like theater? Or... Well, I back in high school, I had like some dramatic formation and I always loved it and I have a couple of friends who also have that background. So it was like a very natural choice. Yeah. And how, how often are you diving now then in Rod? Rotten's like top world class diving, isn't it? World class diving. Yeah. Top three places around the world to dive. Uh, I, so how often are you diving currently then? Uh, basically every weekend, like perhaps three weekends uh, out of four in a month. Yeah. I love it, yeah. Wow. So now I see what you mean now about um, Z-Days potentially being in paradise. You really, you know, in the future. <laughs> is part of the, when, on, a, on that note of um, scuba diving, when a Z-Day owns land down to the shore, what, um, what do you do about the, the reef, the sea, the pollution? You know, how does... Does that come under your governance model, or yes? And actually, that's actually a very good question because, well, for starters, the um, the the ocean cannot be part of a special economic zone. So around here, you have a marine park. It's basically um, uh, a national marine park. Oh, uh, and is that the, does the government own that in inverted commas? Or yeah, it's it's a common good, right? Yeah. Um, but what do we, what we do have inside the set is. Uh, it's truly the the best framework, at least in Central America. I don't want to say Latin America, uh, regarding the protection of the environment. Because what happens is, basically, pollution and you know and habitat destruction is basically what's called a negative externality, right? Um, you know, unforeseen or unwanted consequences of an activity, many times an economic activi activity. And there are three ways that you can, um, you know, prevent them or mitigate them. One is through, um, you know, regulations, having processes for permits and whatnot. Uh, uh, another one is through taxes, you know, activities that, for example, industrial activities that tend to have a lot of negative externalities get taxed more heavily for it, you know, and the idea is that uh, whatever income is gotten from the tax can be invested in uh, environment protection. And the third way, what it Prospera is, is um, leaning more into, is uh, having properly defined property rights that can be enforced efficiently in court, right? Um, but not property rights of the reef or the ocean. Uh -huh. Not like exactly, not exactly the 
property rights over the reef because the reef isn't yours. But if the reef uh, gets damaged, for example, that affects you. That affects if you have, you know, property uh, around Prosper, that affects that could affect the value of your property or, or it could affect your quality of life, right? But how do you, um, how do you uh, measure that? Like, how do you measure? If, if, if a dive company is, is diving on a part of the reef and it's destroying the reef, how do you measure the amount of damage that's doing to, say, a piece of property overlooking the beach. Exactly. Yeah, that's well. That that's another specialized conversation regarding you know damages and how you calculate them. But there is a special process within Prospera, not so much uh, inclined towards you know getting damages, which which can be a trial by itself, but more of a of a short uh, a short a short trial. I believe it's uh, I, I believe it's it can be for more than two months, which is more oriented to stopping the damage to actually efficiently stopping the damage the activity that's causing the 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 negative externality uh in a fast way in a in a you know secure way and that doesn't exist in any other part of the region what happens here in, in including in the ordinary regime in honduras is you the, the countries lean more towards the other options uh, regulation and taxes <laughs> which basically um, makes pollution legal. I mean, you can pollute as long as you have enough money to pay for fines, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So in your experience as a diver around this island, is the reef in good condition on, on most of the island? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, and why is that then, historically? What, what's been the incentive or what's the, been the reason that the, the reef has been maintained so well here? Well, let, let, I just want to start saying that it's not perfect. There, there are some problems right now uh, with the, the, there's a virus all along the Mesoamerican Reef, but I understand they have they have been getting it under control. And then you got the whole pH scales in the water. But in general terms, yeah, the reef is healthy. Uh, it like well, one of the big reasons was this is a very old reef. I mean, it's huge. The coral reefs here. Um, which is the whole Mesoamerican uh, reef barrier, you know, Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, and this this country, these this this regions were not as populated back then, you know, even forty years ago, uh, thirty years ago. What did happen back then was uh, a lot of poaching, you know, a lot of you know indiscriminated uh, fishing, which got controlled. Uh, you still have some artisanal fishing, but not nothing too you know in, in control because uncontrolled because you do want to have the reef protector right you like as a as a society and the people that live here recognize the value of respecting the reef uh, you know that you, you get tourism out of that and whatnot and but what I think has been a key element for the protection of it is you uh, yes it's a national park. Yes, you know, it's a public good or whatever, but you assign the responsibility of its protection to a particular organization, uh, you know, a responsible organization that can be liable for how, how they actually protect it. Uh, in this case, is the Roatan Marine Park, which I think they, they do a, a, a very good job. And is I that a private company? Yeah, it's it's, a, it's an NGO, but yeah, it's private uh, and it's a very grassroots space. You know, it's, you know, local and, you know, foreign foreigners, but that live here for a long time, biologists, divers, whatnot, uh, are part of it. So you make it a community 
uh, issue, right? And and you assign the responsibility to a particular entity. Uh, you don't just leave it in the hands of the of the central government. You know, you leave it in the hands of a local. A organization that you know everybody knows each other so if, you, if you're not doing things right you're going to be ashamed at the street right um so it has this has worked pretty it has worked pretty well and then of course as everything it's it's a cultural matter right it's about educating people about it is that um is is diving here popular with locals i mean obviously a lot of tourists come here to dive but the the Rwatan Hondurans that live here are they are they divers too? Yeah, they start diving when, when they're kids. The, the 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 people from the Rwatan, yeah, from yeah. from the Bay Islands. Right. So so maybe that's. I mean, you know, I dive myself and been diving for thirty something years, and it's depressing remembering what diving was like even thirty years ago in many places, and how annihilated. Some places are whole areas of the Philippines which have been dynamited, or, or you know. I but I'm wondering whether the fact that local people dive here has, has possibly added mm -hmm. to the value of the reef in the eyes of of conservationists. You know, because they they live here, they feel ownership over it because mm -hmm. it's their own island, and therefore you know maybe. Definitely. I mean, there are still parts of the island, for example, you go west side where there are a lot of resorts where there has been, uh, you know, a damaging of the reef. It's not as it used to be 30 years ago, but for the most part, I'd say it's it's still, it, it has kept healthy. And yeah, you got the proper legal framework, the proper legal protection, but also, you know, uh, an operational reality of an existing local community, of an existing local organization. And, of course, having the community all invested in it. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks for, for chatting for so long. That's almost an hour and a half we've been talking. <laughs> I've learned that very fascinating. Um, so thanks for, uh, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Yeah, definitely.